Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, awesome. Um, last week, we, we are continuing our series now, moving through the book of Ephesians, and we're ra- moving through it rather systematically and fairly slowly, bit by bit, piece by piece. We're in the section, first main section, verses 3 through 6, this first key thought of Paul's in this book. And last week we saw simply the fact of God's choice. The, the reality that the Bible communicates that God does the choosing and that his choosing happens before the foundation of the world, before you did anything good or bad. And so what we looked at last week and dealt with is the issue of some look at that and we're distressed by it. We go, well, I thought I chose. And we, and we look at that, those who are saying, how do we understand this idea of God predestining and choosing us before the foundation of the world? And some have said, hey, well, what that's saying is that God foreknew that we would have faith and looking out and seeing that we would have faith, that he then chose and set, set us apart those who he knew would become, could come to faith. But we, that we, I tried to show last week that that is not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying, yes, God actually did choose you before you did anything good and bad, not in response to your future faith, but in planning that you would have faith. So we looked at the fact of God's choice and some of the difficult interpretations of God's choice. And I will admit, I, I want you to recognize and understand, this is deeply crunchy stuff. This is not like you come to church and you're like, you know, I think we last week we looked at almost 25 different passages. This is deep and difficult, and so I'm grateful for you to stick with us. Frankly, I'm just glad you came back after last week. Uh, so this week, we're, we're not running away from it, though. We still have one or two more weeks of kind of diving into some of the challenging issues, and so bear with me. Um, I appreciate your perseverance. I hope it will lead to good things for your life. Last week, we saw the fact of God's choice, so this week, we're going to look at the reason of God's, for God's choice. You see, if God chose us not a, chose before the foundation of the world, not choosing Christ and then hoping we get into Christ, and if his choosing does not mean that he saw our future faith and then set us aside because of having seen our future faith, and if his choosing is not based on any goodness or innocence in us, then what is his what are the reasons for his choosing? Does God have reasons for choosing? And the answer is yes. Now, does God have reasons for choosing Mr. Smith and not choosing Mr. Murphy? Yes. But the reasons for choosing Mr. Smith are not to be found in Mr. Smith. He simply chooses us. God's plan is not based on our performance, on the beauty of our smile, or on our beautiful muscles, or our great uh, activity in this world. Then we might ask, what is God's choice based on? God, it's got to be based on something, right? Why did God choose those whom he chose, and we might even personalize it. God, why in the world would you choose me? And this is the question we're going to try to answer this morning. We're going to answer it right out of the gate, and then answer some of the questions that come up because of it, and then like last week, I'm going to try to draw us into an application as to why this is such good news at the end. So first, let's look at and answering that question. Why in the world did God choose me? What's the, what, what's, what is God's choice of me, 
or of, of some to eternal life and his choice of not giving eternal life to others, what is that choice based on? Well, here we're going to look at the reason or the ground for God's choice. And the answer is found here in verse 5. It says this, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's the answer. Why does God choose, what is God's choice based on? His will, his desire. We see this repeated, Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, just a few verses later. It says this, his love, but he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, and his will is according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined, what? According to the purpose of him who works some things, No, all things according to what? The counsel of his will. And so why does he choose whom he chooses? Because it was his will to choose whom he chooses. That word will here, understand there is nothing tricky about that word. When we use that word, we are referring it to it in the same way that we talk about us and our will. A, a, A person's will refers to a person's determination or choice to do something, right? I chose to get up and come to church this morning. It was my will to get up and come to church. A kid may, in an opposite effect, may decide that it is not my will, I will not eat the spinach. The kid is saying, it is not my purpose, it is not my desire, yea, it is not my will to eat the spinach that you have set before me. The apostle says that these great blessings, these eternal blessings, these spiritual blessings talked about in verse 3, are grounded, come to us grounded upon God's choice, God's will, God's determination. So let me see if I can put it so stark and so simply and so plainly. Why does God choose those whom he chooses? And here's the answer. Because he wants to. That's what it means for the purpose of his will. The reason he has chosen whom he has chosen is because he wants to. Now, understand, I I say that so plainly and starkly to try to get it across, but I don't want you to be misunderstood here. This is not an arbitrary wanting to by God. It is not a foolish or an unthoughtful wanting to by God. It is not like you know, some dude who's hanging out on the couch and his wife comes in, he's been clipping his nails sitting on the couch and she comes in and she goes, why would you clip your nails on the couch? And he kind of looks down like an idiot and there's just this, this array of nails on the floor and just goes, because I wanted to. That's not how God makes choices. They are not arbitrary or stupid or foolish. In fact, what does it say? His purpose of his will, that word purpose, is the Greek word eudokia. You might find in some translations of your Bible what that word eudokia means is pleasure. It is according to the pleasure of his will. Philippians 2 verse 13, we see some other illustrations of where this word eudokia is used. It says, therefore, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Matthew three seventeen. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. The word has reference to an exercise of the will of God, 
which was not sheer determination and unthinking sovereignty, but th- which, which is his right to have, but it is an exercise of the will of God in which he delights to bring this about. It makes him happy to make the choice of le- bringing some to salvation eternally. This is very different than doing something out of simply the duty of your will, out of the coldness of your will. For example, if a kid comes to his mom and says, Mom, I've had this pain in my arm for a number of weeks, and I haven't wanted to tell you about it because I was afraid you were going to take me to the doctor and they would give me a shot. And the mom says, well, thank you for telling me. And so, but she drags her kids off to the, kid off to the doctor, and they, they do some tests on his arm, and they find there's a mass growing on his arm. And so the doctor comes to the child and says, I need to do surgery Will you let me do surgery on you? And the child says, yes, you can do surgery on me, but I'm not going to like it. (laughs) That child, it is his will to take on the surgery, but it is a will of determination. It is a word that it is a will that he doesn't want to carry out, but he does, he's going to do it. The will of God is a happy will. It's a delightful thing that he gets to choose to save some to mercy and eternal blessings. So in that phrase, according to the good pleasure of his will, There is not only the note of God's sovereign holiness going on, his right to choose, but there is the concept of delight in that choosing. Our being made holy and blameless and adopted is traced to God's eternal happiness in setting some aside for salvation. God has compelling reasons for electing people. It is not eeny, meeny, miny, moe. It is in love. It is for purpose It is for his delight that he chose some to mercy. So what are the grounds for God choosing you? Because it made him happy to do so. Because it pleased him to choose you. And so the salvation of sinners under spiritual blessings is God's choice. His delightful choice, not your choice. It is God's will to choose sinners, not our will. It is God's purpose for our life, not my purpose for my life. All right. So I tried to put that plainly and starkly. And if this was a teaching, you know, if I was teaching a class right now and I wasn't preaching, which means you're kind of just stuck. Uh, But I'm going to try to ask some, I would would say, does anybody have any questions? And if if you're a thinking human being, you should go, I have some questions. Excuse me, I have some questions about this. And it is is a good thing to ask questions. Uh, But let me say this. Um, as we, I'm going, to bring, I'm going to bring two questions about this issue, about God's choice, to the forefront this morning. But we must, as an admonishment, let me remind you that God's word is something that we submit to. John Stott said this about God's, this idea of the fact that God chose us. We didn't choose him. He said that this concept is a divine revelation, not a fact of human speculation. In other words, this idea of God choosing us from before the foundation of the world was not something that some uh, theological pinheads were just kind of wandering in the fields one day and had a light bulb come in, and, so, and their thoughts were deep and grand and wonderful. No, we get these thoughts, and we have to deal with these things because God's word says them. And so we must acknowledge that. At the same time, we must not be afraid to ask our questions. It is not cheeky to ask questions of God when he says some things that are difficult for us to understand. So I want to ask these fair questions, and I want us to submit our intellect and the tension of our souls about this issue, but we ultimately must not allow human speculation to trump God's revelation. 
And we must not allow our need to know and understand everything to trump God's right to leave some things a mystery to us. But two questions I want to ask for us this morning about the idea of God's choice. Two questions of God's choice. First question is this. What about man's free will? What about man's free will? The problem comes up as we look at this is if God chose me, ordained my life, ordained my destiny to be holy and blameless adopted, then it would appear to me that the value of human choice has been done away with, maybe even destroyed. It seems that this doctrine, this, that the scripture seems to be pushing here, denies the obvious and deniable fact that God has given man free will. And I would say this is a difficult challenge. But those who've understood this, who read Ephesians 1.5, have also understood that it's not that God simply removes our ability to choose in this. Actually, it's his sovereign choice that enables us to choose him. That is actually the ground of our free choice is the fact of God choosing us first. Here's what the Western Confession says. This is our, doctor, our denominational doctrinal statement. It says that God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty means it's sovereign, means connected to kingship, which means sovereignty is God's right to rule and reign, his right to make decisions. So that God's sovereignty, his right to exert his will whenever and wherever he wants, does not, or is, uh, does not offer violence to the will of the creatures. That means it doesn't destroy your free will. But actually, nor is the liberty or contingency of secondary causes taken away, but rather established. Now, what that is saying is that God's sovereign choice actually frees you to be able to have a free will. And here's what, in order to understand this, we must ask some questions about what it means to have free will. God's choice does not destroy my choice, but instead his choosing actually gives us the capacity that we need in order to choose him. So let's look at the nature of our will. When someone asks, now what do you mean by free will? Here's what we, biblically I think, is a right definition of it. Free will is the ability, the ability to choose according to our desire. Or the ability to choose what we want. We have free will to choose according to our desires and our abilities. So we ask the question, does man have free will? And the Bible's answer is, yes, of course. In one sense, the will is absolutely free. When you came to church this morning, you looked around and you said you freely chose which seat you're going to sit in. Now, it was limited because we've wiped away some of the seats. And if you showed up late, you had less choices than others. But it was still ultimately a choice of your will. But there is another sense in which our choice, our will is limited. Now, understand this is really important. We are free to follow our desires and abilities But at the same time, we are constrained by those desires and abilities. So here in the sense that there are certain ways in which the human will is obviously not free. For one, our ability. Are you free to lift a two-ton truck? Now, by your will, yeah, I want to go go lift a two-ton truck, but you are not able to lift a two-ton truck. And so in that sense, you are not free. Our ability constrains our freedom. So also with our desires. Our desires constrain our freedom. Let me use this illustration like this to help you understand how our desires constrain our freedom. Suppose you have a lion in a cage, and you put out some some hay for the lion to eat. Is the lion free to eat the hay? Well, you say, yes, 
There is nothing constraining. I, the, the, the lion tamer is not standing in between the lion and the hay, guarding the hay from the lion. And yet the lion will not eat the hay. Why? Because it is against his desires and his nature to eat hay. When he looks at hay, he does not see food. He sees a bed. And so he will never eat the hay. The desire of the lion limits the will of the lion. This is even true of God. Does God have free will? Well, if we were to say anybody has free will, we would say God definitely has some free will. But yet, can God lie? First Titus 1-2 says God cannot lie. He is unable, morally unable to lie, because lying is inconsistent with his desires and his nature. And therefore, he cannot do something. Nobody, no being is free in the sense that it, he, she can act contrary to what it, he, she is. Are you with me? All right. So we are both free to pursue the nature of our desires, but we are also bound by the nature of our desires. Now, this brings up a critical issue when it comes to the Bible. What does the Bible say are our natural desires when it comes to God? Do we naturally want anything to do with God? Let me just give you two texts. I don't want to, we can go from beginning to end, but here's one, it says it fairly plainly. Romans 3, verse 11 says this No one seeks for God. In case you didn't hear me correctly, no one means nobody. No one. John 6, says, it says it again, no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws them. In other words, no one will come because we are completely indisposed to coming to God. We cannot because we will not. It is impossible for you to come to Christ when you are hostile to him. So how can you choose him when you don't want him? It would be like the lion eating the hay. You were not born in a neutral state, and therefore you would never have chosen God. Let me just illustrate it with the, the Gerasene demoniac. Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee to another area around uh, the, the, where he lived, and he goes to this one area, and he gets off the boat, and there's this one particular man who is running around, and he's got chains on his wrists, and he's slashing his arms, and he's a crazy person foaming at the mouth. He looks like something out of a Charles Dickens dream. And so he's running around, and so you can ask the question, was the Gerasene demoniac free to run naked and free to terrify and free to scream? Yes. But was he free to sit clothed at Jesus' feet? No. Was he free to be a sensible creature? No. God had to intervene. God had to move. God's grace had to change his nature. The Gerasene demoniac was dead to goodness, dead to life, dead to love, dead to God. He had no desire for those things. And this is the same case for us, that you would never choose God unless God intervenes. And so, therefore, only one thing will cause a sinner to love God, to love the Lord, and that is to change the nature of the sinner. And it is only those whom God has chosen to give a new nature, or we could put it differently, the ones who God has set free from their sinful and enslaved nature, so that by the nature of our, the, our new nature that he gives us, we then live out of that new nature, and we freely choose to trust in Jesus. The new nature he gives us is a longing to choose and to be around God. This is the, the metaphors in the passage of the Bible. This is the, what it brings to us. 
that what God has to do in us first is give you a new heart, to give you a new nature, to give you new desires. Let me just say it this way. We need a heart of, our heart of stone taken out. We need to be given a heart of flesh. This is how the Old Testament describes it. Ezekiel 11 Chapter 11, verse 19 says this, and I will give them a new, one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You needed a new nature so that then you could freely choose according to that new nature to trust in God. Understand that the another metaphor and image that the Bible gives us of where we were and what must happen to us is that we were dead. We were dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead. Now, this is a very important metaphor. What can dead people do? In case you are confused by this, dead people can do nothing. Nothing at all. This is not, understand, there are deep theological truths in the movie Princess Bride. When lovely Wesley is taken to Mad Max and they walk in and they say, Mad Max, can you do something about it? He goes, understand, I must check him out first because there is a difference between dead and mostly dead. If he is mostly dead, perhaps we can do something. But if he is dead, the only thing left for us to do is to search through his pocket for loose change. That's it. Dead people can do nothing. They cannot be, nothing can happen for dead people, and so you couldn't do anything. Dead people cannot bring themselves back alive. And yet it says, why why did we get life? Even when we were dead, what happens? God made us alive in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2.13 says the exact same thing. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and God made us alive together with him. So we can say that if a man or a woman embraces God, it is because God has first given that man or woman a new heart, a new nature that chooses God, that longs out of their free will chooses God. Now it took God taking away their old nature, freeing their old nature and giving them a new nature. And if you don't like that and you view that as a violation of your will, then I don't know that we are what, we ha- what we can talk about. That you look at a God and say, God, you can actively, you can choose to give them a new heart and you have not done so. We have problems. His old nature, our old nature must be pulled away by Christ. We we are pulled away from Christ. We would never go naturally towards him. But with a new nature, we would go towards him. We would run to him. He would be the greatest longing of our heart. And this is what John says. John 6, verse 65 says, and this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Here we see that some come to God because God gives them the ability to come. Same thing in Acts 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they heard the preaching of the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. In other words, God's choosing, their appointment in eternity by God led to their belief. So God's choosing doesn't violate our will. God's choice frees your will from a nature that enslaved you, a nature that have never have chosen God, so it gives you a new nature and new desires that comes programmed with the longing for God. So we ask, didn't I choose God? To which we must answer, yes, indeed you did, and you freely chose him, but only because in eternity God first chose you. We ask, 
didn't I decide for Christ? To which we answered, yes, indeed, and freely you chose and decided to put your faith and trust in Christ. But only because in eternity, God chose you. See, there's an old illustration that I think aptly puts the different perspectives from the perspective of man and from God's eternal perspective. And it goes like this. That before a a sinner receives the gospel, they stand before them an archway and a gate to the entrance of the narrow road to the kingdom of God. And on that gate, over the archway, it says, whoever, whoever will enter shall be saved. That offer is given. But once you have entered and once you're on the path to life, you look back at that archway and it reads on the other side, because you were chosen before the foundation of the world. And so God's eternal decree does not nullify our responsibility, does nullify our need to repent and follow Christ, but wherever there is genuine faith, you know what lies behind it. You know what caused it was God's election, his gracious and sovereign election from all of eternity. So that's question one. (laughs) Did you follow that? Well, the second question will be a little bit shorter on, and it's this. I think it's a more visceral response after hearing that. The second question is this. That isn't fair. Well, that wasn't really so much a question. That was a statement. How, how is this fair? Or, and and um, my first thing I would just say about the fairness is if it appears that God's choice means that he does not choose others, it seems to be a question of fairness. Well, understand that this. If God were fair, then all of us would be in deep trouble. If God gives equally what we deserved, then we would all be condemned to hell. So let me rephrase God, there is no moral value in fairness. The question should not be, how is this fair? The question should be, how is this just? And again, this is not a cheeky question. This is not a question that is illegitimate. It is a reasonable question. And here's how we know it's a reasonable question. Because it's the question that the Bible asks. In Romans chapter 9, Paul has just said, we read this passage two times last week. Paul refers to the fact that God chose Jacob and not Esau. In fact, in verse 13 of Romans 9, it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then Paul says this. In the very next verse, he asks this question. It's a rhetorical question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And then with an exclamation point, by no means. Paul understands and anticipates the cry of unfair, or this is unjust, what he is teaching, and rejects the notion that God is being unjust and showing mercy to some, and giving pure justice to others. In other words, there is no injustice going on here. Simply because God has chosen to be merciful to some does not mean that he is being unjust to others. Let me give you this illustration. Let's say there's a circle of three people who receive God's divine election, his choosing to eternally bless them with spiritual blessings. And there's a circle of other three people who don't receive his divine choosing, do not receive his eternal blessings. If God chooses to sovereignly bestow his grace on some sinners and withhold his grace on other sinners, is there a violation of justice there? Is is anybody not getting what they deserve? Those who don't receive this gift, do they receive something that they do not deserve? If God allows these sinners to perish, is he treating them unjustly? One group receives grace, and another group receives justice. No one receives injustice. It's not fair, and it's not utterly equal, but there is no injustice here. 
And so God can allow some criminals to experience the full measure of their punishment and others to receive clemency. If God commutes the sentence of one person, is he obligated to commute the sentence of another? Paul goes on in this train of thought. Romans 9, verse 15, he says, For he says to Moses, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, and I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, like Ephesians 1, 5, because I want to. In my love, it pleased me to have mercy on some and compassion on some and not on others. Paul is reminding us that it is God's divine right to execute executive clemency when and wherever he so desires. And so he says, I'll have mercy where I want to have mercy. And I'll pour forth pure justice where I want to pour forth justice. So he finally concludes in verse 16 this way. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It is not of him who wills or runs, but the basis, the ground of your salvation is not on your choosing, but it's the free choice of God who chooses us. And so let me see if I can put it plainly. Why did you come to faith and not your friends? The only answer we can give is the pleasure of God's gracious choice, of God's gracious will. Why did God choose to bestow his grace upon me and not on this person? God tells us it was not an arbitrary decision. It was not you got the lucky, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. It was his pleasure in his will. But that is still a mystery to us. It was of his compassion and of his mercy, but it is a mystery of God's electing love. And it should actually bring you to your knees. I'm trying to bring this to the starkest terms. So they're brought to the place of just going, we're aghast. Why would you choose me? There's no reason why you would choose me. If you can come to a place, and it is a mystery to understand what, there, there is no weak thing we can grasp our, with our minds on this. It is a mystery to us. We come to an end of ourselves. But if we would, we would come to the place of simply submitting ourselves to the fact that I'm just aghast that he would choose me that he would pour his love out on me and we would stare into the deep fire of his holy will, I would say that if we would submit ourselves, even in the midst of our tensions and the intellectual issues that we have, we look at it and we go, there is beauty to be seen here. And the beauty that I'd like to point us to this morning is this, that if God chose you, you did not choose him. But if God chose you, if it ultimately begins with him, then this provides you the warmth of eternal security. This is the last thing I just want to point us to this morning. Suppose the ultimate grounds of your salvation were in your choice. It was in your hands. In that case, salvation would be as unstable and fickle as your moods are on a day-in and day-out basis. As fickle as young lepers, right? You would be, I'm saved one day, I choose God this day, I don't choose him the next day. Because this is who we are. What does it mean for us that he chose us before the foundation of the world? What does it mean for us that he chose you not based on anything you did, said, or believed? What does it mean for us that he chose us simply out of his happy desire? What does it mean for us that he chose us not because of anything in us, but even despite us? It means that you did not secure your salvation. You did not choose your salvation, but he chose you, and therefore nothing can unchoose you. 
You cannot unchoose yourself. You cannot deselect the box. He chose you and therefore he holds you secure. You do not secure your salvation, so you cannot lose your salvation. You do not awaken God's love for you. Therefore, you cannot freeze God's love for you. God, God, this is so beautiful. The security that comes to us in this, God knows everything about you. And he knows everything about your future, every lust, every moment, every unseemly pride, every bullying act, every failure, and still he has chosen you. And I think this is a beautiful truth. God will never discover anything new about you. There's nothing, there's nothing that's, that's being left for him to discover that might make him deselect you, de-choose you. He is, right, not like the fickleness of young lovers. Let me just tell you a story from my childhood. Not my childhood, but my college years. I went on a date for about four, five, six weeks with one particular girl, and she was lovely and sweet and beautiful. And my choosing of her, this is how so many of us view our relationship with God, that we are on a long-term, lifelong dating relationship with God, and we hope ultimately he helps to put a ring on the finger. But because we view it like our relationships and our fickleness. Well, one day this girl that I was dating, about four or five weeks in, we were at a friend's house and she's sitting on the couch. And this friend of mine had a small dog and the small dog jumped up next to her and began to bark. And she was about to have a panic attack. And the initial response inside of me of finding out this new information about her fear of dogs was, I want nothing to do with that. Now that is shallow and fickle and silly and stupid, but you're God. Is not like me. Your God is not shallow. He is not arbitrary, silly, small, insecure, sinful, and he will never find anything about you that shocks him. He has chosen you from before the foundation of the world, and nothing would make your God turn away from you. And so here's what it means. Tomorrow, or in a month, when that sin that has dogged you, when you look at those images in the computer, or that, that discipline, lack of discipline in your life, when that anger problem rages again, when it dogs you again and the evil one comes to you and says, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure you're secure in him? Will God, will God might he send you away for that one? This is a bridge too far for God. You say, no way. He knew me. He chose me. He set me aside because it was his happy will and pleasure to do so. I don't comprehend it or understand it, but he has declared it to be so. And so you look at the devil and you read back to him what Paul says in Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the, Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? In Christ Jesus, so tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that assurance, that security, is based on the fact that God chose you, you didn't choose him. And so we submit ourselves to the mystery of his will and we go, praise be to God, I don't understand it. But it delights my soul and it humbles my heart and it gives me joy as a child. Let's pray. 
God, I feel like I took us and around a bunch of questions that I sort of answered and then left us back in mystery. So perhaps this was really helpful for some, and perhaps some are just even more confused than ever before. So Lord, I pray that um, where I have erred, that you would correct it. Where I have been unclear, that you would bring clarity. But Lord, where there is true mystery, and the weight of your sovereign choice sits in front of us, and the, the, the fullness of it, and all the things that we don't understand about it, that, Lord, we would submit ourselves and it would lead us to worship. And so for those this morning, God, who are um, walking in suffering and wondering if their suffering means that you have abandoned them, maybe they did something that would make you so angry at them that you would leave them. So now they're suffering. Oh, gracious God, I pray that the truth the truth of your word would, would secure them today and ground their feet that you will not abandon us. You chose us, and therefore there's nothing we can do to get out of your hand. For those this morning who are struggling with addictive sins that they wonder, have I gone too far? Have I, have I rejected God? Lord, we are weak and fickle, and so we acknowledge that and fall on our feet, on our face, on the rock of your choice of us. That where we have nowhere else to go, no righteousness of our own, that would run back to the fact that we go back, God, you chose me. You chose me, and so I'm going to just cling to that. And that you would secure us in that place this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.